1: This is Bart Peterson, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Greg Gilchrist, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. This is Dan DeMarco, and you are listening to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network.
2: Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'd like to welcome you to the FCPA Compliance Report on the Compliance Podcast Network. In today's episode, I have two guests. The first is Matt Galvin, the Vice President Ethics and Compliance at Anheuser-Busch. The second is Peter Grossman, the co-founder and chief strategist at GADFLY. They are from very different professional backgrounds, but they came together on a project that Peter assisted Matt on, which was compliance training. It's a fascinating exploration of some of the most effective compliance training I've heard of recently. I know you will enjoy it. And I hope that you will consider some of the steps that Matt took that Peter assisted him with for your own compliance training as I'm sure that it will help make your compliance training more entertaining and effective. Thank you. The FCPA Compliance Report is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Hello everyone, this is Tom Fox back for another episode and you are in for a real treat today because I have with me two gentlemen, Matt Galvin, the Global VP of Ethics and Compliance at AB MBEV, uh, and Peter Grossman. Peter is the co-founder of Labyrinth Training and we're here today to talk about their collaborative efforts to come up with some of the most innovative compliance training that I've heard about in uh, some time. So with that introduction, Gentlemen, first of all, welcome, and thank you for taking the time to visit with me today. Thanks, Tom. Thanks for having us, Tom. So Matt, I think most uh, compliance professionals uh, are either aware of you, your name, or uh, the work that AB InBev has done around compliance. So perhaps you could set up the problem or issue you were trying to uh, solve uh, in your training, and then Peter can, can jump in and uh, talk about how he was able to assist you in that.
1: Uh, sure, Tom. I mean. As I've been in this role, there's a few things that I prioritize now much more than I did when I first came over from an external law firm. And one of those things is is training. You know, as an external lawyer, you kind of view training as something that you want to show you've done that it's important. I remember you know, years ago on you know the Morgan Stanley case uh, where they had that guy who who ran afoul of a lot of issues in China, and they decided to charge the guy in our about well, Morgan Stanley as Garth Peterson was the guy. And I remember Justice and a lot of people you know, of my generation of compliance remember distinctly that you know, Morgan Stanley showed that there was something like, and don't hold me to this number, but like 28 separate instances of training that the guy went through to show that Morgan Stanley had a great and effective compliance program. And that became the standard that you want to show a lot of training, you want to have it documented, and you want to be able to show that but query if you know if he went through training 28 times and did it anyway how effective was that training and do I want to be in the position where I'm showing that I did a lot of training over and over again or do I want to be in the position where maybe you can think a little more of people and maybe you can reach to them and maybe training can actually influence behavior and we start down we started down this road uh, roughly a year ago to say you know how do I actually find compliance training it isn't just about documenting that the training went on, but that actually could potentially influence. And I said, well, what is influential? And I looked in the market, and to be honest, I didn't see anything in the market that led me to believe it could influence training. There's all sorts of things about kind of you know, certain analytics profiles. Some, some companies have done a little bit of a job of trying to create narrative storytelling, but none of it was particularly engaging, and all of it was too long. And you know, Peter and I have known each other for years actually, but not professionally. And you know, we we've talked a lot about kind of our work, and after kind of years of knowing each other, and it's we know each other because we coach Little League together. And if anything, um, if you've ever coached Little League, you know there's a lot of time watching young, you know, eight-year-olds walk people. And you in the walks, you start talking about everything. And so I started talking about my problems, and Peter started. To-
0: yeah, so I mean, we, my partner Scott Pets and I come from a very different background um, from Matt and, and it's just a completely different world. We come from entertainment and publishing and that's, that sort of world. Um, and so when we started our production company, we were imagining ourselves to be in that space more. Um, you know, we've done work for, you know, for, for uh, different publications, for HBO, things like that. Um, but what we realized uh, when talking to Matt was that there was this gap there in this industry, in this world that we didn't know anything about. Uh, you know, Matt mentioned a lot of time that we spent together talking on the Little League field and, and it was there where he asked me, hey, do you think you can make a, a compliance training that my employees will actually pay attention to? And I said, well, yeah, we, we make things that people pay attention to. That's what we do. But what's a compliance training? And so we had to sort of start from not knowing anything, and I think that, that helped us a little bit, because as we started to look at what was in the market, um, a lot of PowerPoint slide decks, things like that, that were very uh, dry, um, you know, they, they checked all the boxes, but they didn't necessarily have an eye towards actually communicating to people. Uh, we realized that our background sort of puts us in a unique spot here to bring something different. Um, and that you know that's that's what we've been trying to do from the beginning is is just to is just to engage people to entertain them so when the education part hits they're actually their minds are open and they're willing to listen to it they're they're paying attention quite frankly to what it is that they they need to be paying attention to
2: so Matt let me uh, let me pick up on Peter's last point because I've seen a fair amount of compliance training that is entertaining but that really wasn't what you were looking for uh, I think I wrote this down right. Uh, you were looking for training that could influence behavior, and uh, I would perhaps even add, uh, be able to demonstrate the effectiveness. So how were you able to work with Peter to get from entertain, entertaining, engaging training to training that actually influenced behavior?
1: Yeah, and I think there, there's two parts to that, right? One is the training itself, and the other is how do you measure if it worked? And so let's start with the training itself. I mean, you know, I work in an environment of, of of great professionals. We have 160,000 people. We're proud. We work in 400 different brands of beer. But we're, as a culture, very ownership-oriented and very, very interested in learning. And I could take advantage of that culture that really prizes learning and say, if I could capture attention, they're willing to learn. The catch is that you have to capture attention. And for that, you need a few things, right? As a lawyer, one of the first things I realized is I needed an editor because no matter how engaged people are in learning, they're not going to be engaged for, you know, an 80-minute or 60-minute compliance training, particularly if there's a law school style exam at the end. So the first thing I had to do was was make it shorter. The second is the objective of the training had to be a little bit different, you know, we went through a, a bunch of different ways and a lot of lawyers would be like, well, let's start with the law. Well, that's a great way to lose anybody who's not a lawyer is starting with the law, right? Let's start with the issue and let's start with the issue and then come up with real life experiences that that can teach the issue and kind of show what will happen if you don't think through the consequences of your actions and show seemingly benign situations, You know, an interaction with an old college buddy who worked at a competitor or sending an email and the implications that can have on cybersecurity and data privacy. You seemingly mundane things and then show people what consequences can happen if they don't think through all the legal issues that are there. You'll see in our trainings, we don't really mention the law and we don't cite statute. What we do is show what the law is trying to get to. And then people can take away from that.
0: Yeah, to just to just jump on what Matt's saying, I, you know, the the policies are all in there, um, even where the law isn't. But you know, ABI's policies are in all of those trainings. It's it's how they're delivered, um, as opposed to you know looking at just points on a on a slide. You know, the way that we get to that is by sitting with Matt and his team and saying, "Hey, how do you guys screw this up?" How have you guys messed up? What are the mistakes that people make in this area? And so much comes from just hearing people talk, oh, well, okay, so let's say there's a guy and you're going to open a brewery and you have to secure land. Well, you're gonna be approached by the governor, you're gonna be approached by all these politicians, some of whom may be corrupt, and how do you navigate that? Now, for someone like me who has a background from you know Rolling Stone and Us Weekly and places like that, I never came in contact with anything like this before. Uh, you know, the closest I have is the paparazzi, and they're way more compliant than, than most of the things that happen that, that Matt's concerned about. Um, and so, hearing those stories, you realize that that's where information is shared. I learned way more about how to handle corruption by hearing the stories that Matt has about this local governor or that local figure, whatever, whoever it may be and hearing how, what actually happens, because you can tell people on a, you know, to read it in a book, and that's not the same thing as what the, what they're likely to experience. Um, do you, sorry, go ahead.
1: No, and then, and then it goes into how do you measure the impact, and and Tom, you know, I, I'm really into analytics, and I'm really into how do I actually measure and quantify the impact of compliance. Because I'm not, I don't think compliance should only be process. I do think we need to have an impact on the organization and we need to be accountable to our organizations for the impact that we have. And so we look at, you know, how do we do that with training? Well, in some things we look at whether it raises awareness of whistleblower lines. And as I roll, you know, certain trainings out, say it's a a sexual harassment training, what I would expect to see an impact on reported cases uh, of, of harassment. You know similarly with with data privacy, that we' expect to see more engagement with the data privacy function as a result of the training. But I also learned from Peter and Scott and, and the Labyrinth folks to look at what about the impact of the training itself or the interaction with the training? Should in, it raises questions to me that I want to explore other metrics. For example, our our trainings, for many most of them are multiple choice. And you go down one path and some trainings, you'll see it all no matter what you do. And others, you only see part of it and kind of snippets of, of the other piece. But is the training good enough that people want to watch it again? You know, that's an entertainment metric. Or how fast do people make choices? You know, if they were presented with an A and B, how quickly do they interact with that? Or is there like a lull or a gap between, you know, the end of a narrative structure and the choice point, which suggests maybe someone isn't engaged? And taking these sort of metrics, you know, from the entertainment world, from the social media world, and applying them to compliance training is fascinating to me in ways that we're looking into how to actually measure kind of the interaction with the training. Well, you know, when the confines of kind of measuring the overall impact on the environment at large, and that not everyone takes that view and there's products in the market that take a different view from that, but that's, that's where we're going with this.
2: So Peter, audience satisfaction would seem to be something that you've thought about quite a bit in your prior life and your current life. How does that fit into what Matt just described?
0: We hear so often uh, from everyone, every client that we speak to about how I had one person that we spoke with that likened had a, a, a new baby and said that, you know, we could just play our compliance trainings if I need to put them to sleep. And I it's the same story over and over again we've got this we have it's not that people are not are wondering what these tra- what trainings are they just have things that are not particularly engaging and you know it i we found that it it's the same with anything i mean if you want to be there if you're more engaged if you're being spoken to and not at um it's you have a better experience and you're more willing to learn. I mean, if you think back at all the best teachers you ever had, going back to kindergarten, it's always the ones that were outside of the box, that weren't the ones that are just reading you, you know, reading you something out of a textbook. It was the people that got the class up, that got people talking, that got you engaged. And so we, every decision that we make with these, with all the storytelling is, is geared towards sticking in someone's head. We don't need you to remember Uh, you know, every single line of the FCPA, we want you to remember the situation that we put you in in this training about whether or not you were supposed to buy those cows. That you'll remember. And ultimately, what I think people in mass position are looking for are are, are for his employees to just stop and think, or just pick up the phone and call compliance or call whoever, you know, depending on, on the issue. Make the call to somebody. And if the only option for you is should you A, do this, B, do this, or C, call compliance, everyone's gonna just click C and call compliance and that'll be the end of it. And so we remove that, always remove that as an option for what people can do. We show them all the different paths that sound like they're right, uh, and sometimes they're all right, um, but that have something wrong with it, some sort of attachment to it that says, oh, wait a minute, This, this is what could go wrong here. And we find that you know if those are the kinds of things that you'll remember. You'll remember the journey that you were sent on. You'll remember, you'll make associations to things. It's, it's sort of the difference between a piece of sheet music where it has all the notes there and you look down on it and anyone who can read music can look at it and say, okay, I, I see what this is supposed to sound like and hearing a symphony. It's, it's a completely different experience and what, the thing on the piece of paper isn't music. It's the sound that you hear that's the music. And so Matt's policy is, you know, are, are the sheet music. That's the guidelines for which you for which we're trying to you know, get information across. But the trainings become the music. The trainings become the thing that you sit in, that you remember, that you have an experience around. And that's a, a much more powerful way to get a message across than to just sort of read it out of a textbook.
1: And I remember, Tom, when, we first, when I was first doing this, we first did the beta version of the first training. And we sit in an open office environment. And I opened it up and I was watching it on my computer screen. And, you know, it was a seven-minute training. And within two minutes of playing in kind of low volume, uh, I guess I'm not a great office neighbor. I wasn't wearing headphones. But I had eight people go by who stopped what they were doing just to watch the training. And I was like, this is amazing. This is not something that we're required to do. People actually... Willingly stopped to watch a compliance training. And that was really gratifying. And I think we're still only kind of early on this journey. Because, you know, we've made five different modules now. And we have kind of, you know, we have another seven in the pipeline. And what we're starting to see is as Peter and Scott explore, there's a little narrative world, and the cartoon characters recycle and, and come up and they take on kind of embodiment of certain messages and, you know, being a company of brands at ABM Bev you know, I understand the power of a brand and there's a clear opportunity that we could rebrand compliance and have, you know, the chief and the corruption story be a t-shirt uh, wearing you know, of corruption or the cows be part of the t-shirt and we can do compliance messaging with the characters. And, The beautiful thing about that is as much as I got everything, we got everything to like seven, eight minute training increments. Now with an image, you get that kind of, you know, Apple brand moment where you see an Apple and you associate it with the iPhone and and cool products. And then you see the character and people will associate that with compliance. And there's a lot out there that says the key to kind of effective compliance communication isn't one long hour training. It's kind of constant reminders and just to be an ever-present kind of Jiminy Cricket on the shoulder. And the way to get there is through this kind of, you know, at least the way we're seeing a path to get there, is this ever-present imagery that allows us to simplify our language and approach people through a more base and more branded level.
2: Matt, it occurs to me that uh, your workforce, your the vendors, uh, your high-risk uh, supply chain vendors, and perhaps uh, high-risk on the sales side make A, B, Inbev, as diverse an organization, corporation in the world as there is, in terms of the number of employees you have and and where you guys do business, which I have to assume is literally everywhere. Are you able to um, uh, do the second part of what the DOJ talks about in training, in addition to effectiveness, but targeted training through this message, message system?
1: It's interesting, and you're right. Like, you know, one thing that makes our footprint a little bit different. Is that as global as we are, beer is local. The supply chain's local, the you know, grain is heavy, bottles are heavy, beer is heavy. So our workforces, you're right, are parts of the communities where they operate. Which is very different from say, you know, a tech company. If you make, you know, cell phones, you probably make them in one or two countries and then you sell them in, you know, the other 160. Beer doesn't work like that typically. And you know, for me, we're approaching that. In a couple of different ways. And it's part of the evolution of the process. And how do you reach and make relevant, you know, training to people? And how do you influence behavior? Because you're right, what's going to influence, you know, a senior executive in New York is probably different than what will speak to a sales rep in Lagos. And, you know, some of it we're trying to do by making it short and engaging and the storylines are are powerful. And, you know, we're translating in in 14 different languages and kind of covering kind of basic things like that. But where we're moving towards is, you know, I said we've done five and we have, you know, seven in the pipeline is, you know, many of them are of the storylines can relate to things that an ordinary person, many people in the workforce are gonna do. Like sending an email is the first part of data privacy is what do you need to think about before you send an email and then what can go wrong? Well, and even in my company, that probably covers maybe a third of my workforce. Two thirds probably don't use email for work on a daily basis, right? They're they're brewing beer, they're selling beer, they're not sending emails. So we're actually taking another group of trainings that are going to be focused at different segments of the population. And the idea is to create and promote And I'm stealing this a little bit from Wei Chen, ethical bystanders, you know. And you know, one of the things we looked at, and we were learning and and kind of upgrading our our sexual harassment training, is the best thing to do in harassment is, you know, some people would say, well, you got to train the men. You know, traditionally you train, you know, a lot of the more more likely victims, in this case, you know, the women about what it is to, to be harassed, but they kind of already know. The better thing to do and what I thought was the most compelling to me and where our training is focused is to train both about what to do if they see it happening around them and remove the risk of complicity to bad behavior of harassment. And there was a really good op-ed in the New York Times about a year ago that told the story of a woman on a train seeing another woman being harassed and she was eating a bag of chips in the train. And what she thought to do was start taking the chips and eat them very loudly and messily and kind of start dribbling chips everywhere, which distracted both the person harassing as well as the victim and allowed the woman who was being the victim a chance to escape. And that got me thinking that that's a concept that could be applied almost anywhere. And we could take training and orient them at functions, let's say a sales function, and say, what, what, are, what misconduct do you see around you? that you should raise awareness of. Same with back office functions. We're taking a training aimed at people that work in back office and the ones that are processing transactions and doing all that kind of nuts and bolts that every organization needs. What misconduct do they see? And project it not so much to educate them, but to educate what they should kind of raise their hand about. How do you promote a culture where people are willing to raise their hand and raise an ethical challenge. And then my other part of my job is to provide a function that can do something about it. And that's a concept that I think will transcend, that will work in the 90 countries where we are, and that we can use and really tell a story and really kind of hopefully change behavior.
0: Yeah, I mean, just to just piggyback on what Matt's saying, I mean, it's it's not about training, like finding all the nefarious people in your organization and saying okay we need to get them because they're likely to do bad. I mean you'll find that you know no no one thinks that they're doing something wrong especially at the beginning of one of these processes. You know whether it's corruption or it, honestly even on there's the vast majority you know Matt brings up harassment. It's not the guy that is just going to go up to any woman and be horrible no matter what that you're trying to train. Hopefully the hiring process is weeded those people out. But in the cases where it hasn't, it's the guy next to that guy that's standing there watching it happen that you need to get to. It's, it's the person, like Matt's saying, that sees the weird transactions going through and maybe has a chance to say something. Uh, it's not about reaching the villain. It's about reaching the, the community at large so when they see a villain, where they see villainous behavior, I should say, uh, they know to point it out. You know, we're big believers in there are no good people or bad people. There's just people that have their own motivations. And so when you see something that someone is doing, it's not about necessarily, oh, look, that horrible person. It's, hey, that's a a bad thing that's happening, and we need to blow the whistle on that thing. Um, And so creating an environment where people feel comfortable speaking about it, uh, which is why, you know, the anti-retaliation, for example, uh, segment is such a prominent part of our harassment training, and also, just letting them know, hey, what 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 to do? Am I supposed to call someone? Who do I? What do I do here? Um, just so that they know that there is something to do, um, so they aren't standing by. I mean, that's that's the whole that's the whole hope is that is that um, you know you're educating the masses to all sort of point at the same thing together, as opposed to trying to weed out all the you know individual problems.
2: So, Peter. Um I was really intrigued. Uh, one of your early remarks, uh, when you said you were first discussing this project with Matt, and, and it, it was along the lines of, "So, you know, what's compliance training?" But I was wondering, were there any um, real su- surprises for you in this process, or if, if not surprises, were there uh, some insights that you had not anticipated uh, coming across really throughout your phase of the creative process?
0: Yeah, definitely. Um- I, I think that the thing that stood out the most, and from the beginning, and continues to sort of hit me upside the head every time I come in contact with it, is that uh, you know we in our in our previous roles in our previous industry, we spent so much time and energy on things like headlines and cov- magazine covers or leads to videos, things like that, because it's so important to to capture your user um, and. We were doing that for things that were not necessarily capital I important. You know, it was an interview with someone from Game of Thrones or what happened on The Bachelor last night or things like that. And, but a lot, the ratio of effort put into capturing someone's attention to importance is completely out of whack. Um, There's so much energy put into capturing people's attentions for entertainment purposes, for things like that. Um, Up and down, multiple industries, but there's so little um, attention given to how engaging something is for something that really capital M matters, you know, where where you're talking about corruption or harassment or serious conflicts of interest, things like that. uh, This is going to affect everyone up and down the company. This affects, globally, it affects societies. Um, And so I was surprised by the, it's certainly not a lack of effort. As Matt says, you know, there's a lot of words being written down, there's no, there's no shortage of words or policies or things like that. But it's, it's that the focus wasn't on, is this actually landing? Is this communicating? Would my employee wear a T-shirt with this on it? Is so, sounds like a silly question when you're talking about compliance, but it matters because that means that they're engaged in it. That means they think it's cool. That means they'll remember it. That means that when they're sitting around, they're not rolling their eyes going, oh, did you have to sit through that horrible training? They're instead going, oh, did you buy the cows? What did you do? And that, that sort of, um, we've seen it happen with the people that we work with. And we hear on the way in, it's always the same thing. Oh, no one pays attention. They're, they're, and and I'm, I was surprised um, that engagement wasn't a, a, a top priority. Um, as far as, you know, sort of walking through the, the, the individual trainings, the individual steps, I mean, I, I sort of referenced this earlier, but I think one of the things that always makes me laugh is, um, is the perception of versus reality. Um, for example, if you were to ask the, the average person on the street, who do you trust, the paparazzi or the executive? I've worked with both, and I've seen now <laughs> that much more harm is done on sort of a global level at, in the corporate world than it ever happens in some of these things that, you know, the used car salesman or the paparazzi or the people that have uh, the reputation for, for being nefarious. It, that's not really, that's more upfront and honest actually. It's, it's when it's coordinated and, and a global um, that real damage gets done and, and um, I think that's something that has also struck me. You know, we're talking about doing a human rights training right now and you realize that decisions that are being made on a daily basis that people think are business decisions. Oh, yeah, that's a good price on that land. Or, oh, sure, I'll work with that government to ensure that we can carve this part out just for business. And you think, oh, I'm making a business decision. But you're not, you're making a decision that might affect the human rights of whole nations. And I think that um, that's something that has really been impressed upon me, that, that these decisions are not necessarily made the ones that really end up doing harm, are not necessarily made by you know, bad actors in dark rooms with you know, petting their cat on <laughs> it's not that. It's the systems that are in place that allow for it to happen, where someone just thinks they're getting a good deal and so they make a business decision and they don't think through what's happening on the back end. Uh, I mean, I suppose you could say that in every industry, that you know people think about the consequences when they happen, um, but that's, that's really struck me that uh, for issues such as you know, these massive issues, corruption, harassment, human rights, that there isn't um, the realization that every little decision that you make as an executive might actually be impacting things other than your company.
2: So, Matt, is there anything about this process that, uh, if not, uh, if it didn't surprise you, did it give you an insight or insights in a direction you hadn't uh, anticipated?
1: Yeah, I think it would, one byproduct of this that is super welcome is it's raised the profile and changed the conversation with compliance. Almost every head of compliance of any major company has what seems to be like a God-given right to make everybody in the company sit down and do compliance training. And yet that opportunity is taken and given, you know, kind of short shrift and you delegate it really down the pipeline to someone that wants to do it and kind of with minimal effort as possible – in part because the logistical challenge of then translating it and communicating it and then looking at the results can be quite laborious, but not enough time goes into content. But one of the byproducts of that is that then people look at compliance and say, oh God, you had the opportunity to talk to me and this is what you... Told me like this is a, like a forty-five minute exam. This is what you want to make me do. And the function itself, people kind of then, you know, whether you realize it or not, as a compliance person, you're branding yourself as kind of boring and off the point. Where what this is doing, you know, by even you know whether it's good or not, people will walk away and said, you know, Matt thanks for making an effort. Thanks for really trying to reach out to me and kind of raising the level of conversation. And it seems simplistic, but just raising the level and talking to them like they're human and not lecturing them, not testing them, not analyzing them, but just saying, you know, this is a scenario where you might need help. And this is the kind of help I can provide. This is the legal advice I can provide. And again, in the trainings, I don't use the word legal advice because, You know, right away, that that has its own brand. But, you know, by using this opportunity to reach people and elevate the conversation with them, uh, you know, and and maybe this is me in my own little compliance bubble, but I do think you elevate the function of compliance. You elevate the conversation around ethics by taking this approach.
0: And the last thing you said, I mean, that is the thing that I noticed about Matt from the beginning of this process is that it's not – Really compliance it's ethics and there's a difference between the two in the sense that compliance is really just rule following and if you are approaching it and approaching your staff is here are some rules to follow you're going to get a response the same way that you get you know you're you're flashing people back to kindergarten when they're not allowed to draw outside the lines and everybody wants to and everyone does it anyway and so the question is is it really unethical to draw outside the lines well it depends is the answer a lot of the time and If you can communicate to people, not just here are the rules you have to follow, but here's a general situation, and here's how we need you to act in that situation. Here are the things that you need to consider in that situation. It's a very different conversation than here are a bunch of rules to follow. And as you move the the conversation more towards just the general ethics of it instead of just here are the policy things to follow, you're having a conversation, like Matt says, you're having a conversation with people. You're not dictating to them. He's right. You do have this incredible a power to just, hey, you have to watch what it is that I'm going to say to you right now. You have no choice. Um, you can make the decision as the person implementing those trainings to make that fun. And it, that resonates. People go, oh, you, may, I, you could have made this anything you want, but you made it this fun, cool, interactive cartoon situation, and characters are flying at me and coming at me from different episodes, and oh, I remember that guy. And that's fun. And now this thing that could have been a chore is... Engaging and fun is something that people look forward to instead of oh, I have to go take that thing again Which means they're automatically tuned out
2: so gentlemen unfortunately we are near the end of our time But I've been visiting today with Matt Galvin from ABM Bev and Peter Grossman co-founder of Labyrinth gentlemen This has been a ton of fun, and perhaps the one thing I've learned is um, Always pay attention to your little league coach
0: <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. You're talking to a, you're talking to a championship winning little league coaches from this year, so that is very good advice.
2: All right, I look forward to continuing the conversation. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Thanks.
2: Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. Hope that you will join us again next week for another episode of the FCPA Compliance Report. And to also check out the latest offering of the Compliance Podcast Network, which is Accountability at the Heart of Compliance, a podcast which I am co-hosting with Sam Silverstein. Sam's got some great ideas on accountability, and they're directly applicable to the compliance space. So check it out, Accountability at the Heart of Compliance. Both Accountability at the Heart of Compliance and the FCPA Compliance Report are produced by the Compliance Podcast Network. The FCPA compliance report is a proud part of the C-Suite Radio. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.